Hello world, Jay Sutton here, episode 4 of the Destroying Doubt podcast. Today I have a special guest with me who who would love to talk to you all and tell you a little bit about the whole conscientious objective process and give you some of her story. A couple of episodes ago I gave you my side of the story and what I've been going through and what I've been dealing with. And I introduced you to the conscientious objective process. This episode, I want to talk to someone, let someone talk to you all who's been dealing with this a lot longer than I have. She's been executive director at the CCW since since 2011. She's been a counselor on the GI Rights Hotline in New Mexico, where she also served as the coordinator of the Albuquerque Center for Peace and Justice. In her five and a half years, she has worked with over 100 conscientious objectors. Her name is Mrs. Maria Santelli, and she will be joining our show today. Hi, Maria. Hello. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me on. No problem. It's good to talk to you. Uh, Maria is someone that I've been dealing with through this process, and she and her staff there at the center. Of, it, it is the center of consciousness in war, right? Uh, conscience. Center on conscience. Center on conscience in war. Sorry. Um, That's okay. Her and her staff have been helping me a lot throughout this process, and I know I wouldn't have been able to get as far as I have or get as much accomplished as I would like to without them. So I want to thank you personally for that. Um, oh, it is our honor, really. You guys are doing the hard work, taking the moral stand of conscience, and it's really the least we can do to support you in that process. Cool, cool. So... Could you just tell us what led you to pursue this line of work? Well, I, uh, while I grew up on the East Coast, I actually uh, spent my formative, you know, youth years into adulthood in New Mexico. And in New Mexico, it doesn't take long once you get there or once you kind of come of age there for you to realize the utter stranglehold that the war industry, particularly in the form of nuclear weapons, uh, the nuclear weapons cycle, production and um, testing and waste disposal, it doesn't take long for you to realize the stranglehold that this industry has on the land and people of New Mexico. And so um, that was some of my first work as a young activist was uh, working for <laughs> clearly disarmament, but also accountability of the two national nuclear weapons laboratories that are in the state of New Mexico. We have every aspect of the nuclear weapons cycle in New Mexico, from uranium mining, which of course largely takes place on indigenous lands, all the way through to waste disposal. And New Mexico uh, representatives who represent the state of New Mexico in Washington have long received more money for their re-election campaigns from the weapons industry than they have from average New Mexicans. So it's a pretty disheartening thing and still goes on today for folks who may not be aware we are still making uh, components real live uh, nuclear components for nuclear weapons in the United States arsenal every day uh, which is really horrifying and it is contaminating the land and the people of New Mexico um, on a regular basis our nuclear weapons dump had a severe accident just about three years ago it'll be three years on Valentine's Day 
And so it's it's a real heartbreaker for me. I mean, the land and the people of New Mexico welcomed me and, and helped shape me into the person that I am today. And and so um, I I tried to to reciprocate and uh, and help uh, to end you know some of the the horrible um, you know effects of nuclear weapons industry on on the land and people of New Mexico. And I did that work for several years until. Um, until the election or or the Supreme Court appointment of of uh, President George W. Bush uh, in the year 2000, when my work then took a more broad focus and I started to look at uh, more broad issues of war and peace generally. And then, of course, September 11th happened, and it was quite clear that we were going to enter a new uh, cycle of unending war, which we have and which endures today. And, and so... Um, you know, it was kind of, it was heartbreaking to me. I really thought we were going to stop the invasion of Iraq back then. In, with, with, we had hoped we would stop the invasion of Afghanistan. That one was probably pretty insurmountable. It turned out stopping Iraq was also insurmountable. And so I, I turned my work to something that I felt I could have more, you know, more immediate effects, more immediate successes with, and that was helping individual service members who uh, refused to take part in, in war and killing. So that's how I got to where I am today. <laughs> wow, that's that's deep. I, I didn't know about what was going on in New Mexico as far as the nuclear weapons. Is there somewhere that someone can look up that information that you know of that if they're moved to, you know, uh, learn about that? Sure. Yeah, yeah. A great website, some great folks, uh, researchers uh, and academics. And actually, the principal person of this organization is a former nuclear weapons scientist. And it's called the Los Alamos Study Group. And the website is just lasg.org. So the initials like Los Alamos Study Group, lasg.org. And they do some great work on uh, on the nuclear weapons complex all over the U.S., but with particular focus on New Mexico as well. Okay, wow, that's that's cool. I'm definitely going to check that out. I encourage all the listeners yeah. to check that out as well. And you said that when the Bush administration took over, <laughs> you know, that gave you a more broad spectrum, I guess, of of war in general or what was going on or what what. How did that shape you? Was it the the 9-11 or was it everything what did 9-11 start the snowball for you or was it everything else that was going on <laughs> yeah well i mean i guess i had always had hope that we had some checks and balances literally in our government you know um and so when you know when the supreme court decided that election and stopped the recount in florida this was going back you know way back to 2000 um, you know, that was how George W. Bush became president. He was not elected by the popular vote, just like we have today. I mean, Donald Trump was not elected by far by the popular vote, um, but it was the Electoral College where he, he won, you know, by the rules he won, but he certainly didn't win the election, and neither did George Bush, and, and there was a recount going on in the state of Florida, and the Supreme Court stopped that. And when that happened, for me, in my young, impressionable, idealistic heart, you know, at that time, I just, I was horrified by that, and it felt like tyranny, you know, and it really felt like a hostile takeover of our democratic process. And, um, and that was when I decided it was it was time to, you know, really to advocate for a broader uh, equality and, and justice, um, not just focused on nuclear weapons, although that certainly, you know, was my focus all, you know, through that work, too, was, was peace and justice, um, because obviously I, I didn't want nuclear weapons ever to be used again on living people as they had been uh, in Japan. And then also, of course, during testing, I mean, not used on living people, but living people suffering the consequences of the testing. You know, so there was definitely a... a 
an objective there of, of peace with justice, but um, with my nuclear weapons work. But yeah, when, when George Bush became president and, and that seemed like the democratic process had really been circumvented, I was pretty scared about what was going to happen in our future. And look what happened. You know, I mean, we can, we can absolutely look at the origins of ISIS as, as coming from George Bush's decisions, you know, um, no question about it. Global terrorism, no question about it was inspired by the invasion of Iraq. You know, I mean, that was everything that we're suffering now and that innocent people just most recently, you know, the attack in Istanbul, you know, going back before that, the attack in Berlin and how many attacks on civilians can we count that have their roots in the invasion of Iraq, and it never would have happened without the invasion of Iraq. And I see George Bush as a person who is seeking um, forgiveness now. No question. You look at that man's paintings, and he's seeking forgiveness, you know, and there is no question in my mind that that blood is on their hands. The George W. Bush administration, the blood of Istanbul, the blood of Berlin, you know, just a few weeks ago is on their hands and has its origins in those wars, and that's exactly what we feared. Those of us that were you know, working throughout that time and becoming active and, and getting our, you know, our political awareness during that time, this is exactly, you know, we maybe couldn't have articulated it at that time, but these are exactly the the repercussions, the blowback that we feared would happen. Well, and here we are. Yeah, I obviously agree with you. And, and you mentioned articulating. I, I don't think I'm the best at that either, maybe through writing, but not, you know, speaking about everything that's going on. That's why I have someone like you on the show so that, so that you can talk uh, to to people and explain it to them. Because I talk to me being in the military, I run across someone almost every day that has the same ideas and thought process that we do. But it wow. it, it it ultimately boils back down to. They feel like, you know, it's wrong what I'm partaking in, but I have to feed my family. So my question to you, mm. and I and I kind of understand it because, you know, the way everything is set up, um, they feel like they have the military is the only way that they can survive or whatever. So mm-hmm. that's part of the reason why I'm starting this podcast. You know, it's called Destroying Doubt. So I can, you know, show people that there is a better way. You, you can make a living outside of the military. You don't have to do something that that conflicts with your moral and your spiritual makeup. You can, you can make it a different way. So what would you tell someone that is having those issues with their military service? Mm. It's a very complicated question. I mean, this is our name, right? Center on conscience and war, and it's such an individual choice. That being said, however, it is only with the suppression of conscience that military training achieves its goals. In other words, military training is expressly designed to teach people to suppress their conscience. That is part and parcel of military culture, and it is the the express scientific intent of military training. And you can attest to this, Jay, you've been there yourself. Military training teaches people to react uh, reflexively by rote without thinking and without filtering through the conscience. And that's how people get through their day to day. I'm, I'm vegan. I don't eat any animal products at all. And I find that a lot of people are really, um, threatened by that or they get, they get hostile toward me if they find out that I'm vegetarian or that I'm vegan because I think that it, they feel like I'm putting it in their face somehow, like I'm waving my morals in their face or something like that about animals. But I can't, you know, 
I can't eat. I can't eat an animal that I know has been tortured, right? And so people say, like, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. It tastes good. I don't want to think about it. Because if you do reflect on it, if you do reflect on how animals are treated for your food and just because something tastes good, or if you are forced to kill your own animal, that creates a whole different mindset. So the same is true, I think, with people serving in the military or fighting in war. If you take the time to reflect, of course your conscience is going to tell you that what you're doing is wrong, that taking another human life is wrong. And so we have to create, we have to suppress the conscience, number one, and then we have to do other things that create distance, right? That create emotional distance, that create psychological distance, that create physical distance, right? So we do things like we make nicknames up for the people we want to kill, right? Or we say things like, we, we call them gooks, or we call them towel heads, right? Or um, we consider them lesser than human. We take away their humanity because we know in our conscience that killing another human being is wrong. So we dehumanize our opponent in order to, to be more easily able to kill them. We also, that's emotional distance, you know, or we create a, a feeling of superiority through that emotional distance. We also say things like, God is on our side. Right. Or that they somehow worship a different God or that they're, you know, that, that our God, there's a hierarchy in these, you know, faith traditions and ours is better. You know, this George W. Bush often said this is a Christian war. We still have the mindset that this is somehow Christianity against Islam or something like that. Right. As if somehow um, all spiritual traditions don't have their roots in peace. You know, so we kind of try to create that distance. Also, if you look at um, the physical fighting of war, look how we've created distance. Remember back in the day, we're coming on the eve of the 100th anniversary of the United States into World War I. Remember back in the day, trench warfare, where you actually fought one-on-one -on -one against your opponent, and you looked that opponent in the eye, and what did that cause? That caused people not to fire their weapon, because when you're looking in at someone's face, you can't help but experience their humanity. And when we had those kinds of, you know, one-on-one -on -one combat situations, fewer people shot to kill, fewer people willfully engaged in killing their quote-unquote opponent. And so what have we done in modern warfare? We've created distance. We have bombs that we drop from 30,000 feet in the air. We have drones now, the ultimate expression of distance. You're in a trailer in the Nevada desert or the New Mexico desert playing a video game. But ah... Drone warfare has actually, pardon the term, backfired to a certain extent, right? Because what has happened is there's been opportunities for greater intimacy, actually, between the, the uh, you know, the shooter on the U.S. side, say, and the opponents on the uh, whatever side, you know, of the country, the, the one of seven countries that were bombing with drones at the moment. Um, and so what happens is, you know, these drone pilots will, pilots will often follow people or families, you know, from the sky, from their eye in the sky for a month or more. And they'll know the family structure. They'll know the children. They'll see every time dad comes home and, and, you know, the time of day dad comes home and plays with the children, you know, pushes them on the swing outside or, you know, uh, dances with his wife, you know, uh, sits down to dinner with the family. And these drone pilots see this and they watch this and then they're given the order to fire on them. So in a, in a weird sense, uh, that idea of creating distance has, has, uh, has had some um, negative and unintended uh, consequences with the drone pilots. But other ways of creating distance, too, the increased mechanization of war, where, you know, a couple decades ago we might have had a ship with a few thousand people on it. We're moving to the days when we can hopefully get a ship with a couple hundred people on it. Why? Because people are the variable that fails. When the conscience comes back, and it always will, 
that person is going to make the choice not to kill. Wow. I, <laughs> I said wow. a lot there. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's that's deep. That's that's very powerful. That's that's very powerful. So when did you, I answer your question? <laughs> I hope so. You did. You you did. But I also know that there are people like in my career field, I'm not on the front lines per se. Uh, I'm not the pilot of the aircraft. I'm not dropping bombs on people. So there I have talked. I spoke with other people and they're like, you know, I understand how you feel and I agree with it. But I can sleep good at night because I'm not the one directly killing people. You know, I'm turning wrenches or I'm pushing paperwork or whatever. Like, I'm not as convicted as you because of that reason. Do you have anything that you would say to to those people? I mean, again, it's really an individual, you know, uh, decision. It's a decision that each person has to make on their own. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think if you really do see what's going on, I mean, the military uses the term mission. You know, mission, capital M, the mission. Every job supports the mission. So you might be... You know, you might play the trumpet in in the army or whatever, you know, but you're playing the trumpet in order to spread the message of of U.S. warfighting capability around the world. You know, that's the reason that you that you play that trumpet. You know, if you push paper, you're pushing paper in order to facilitate other people taking lives. So <clears throat> I think you're right. I think people have to make those justifications for themselves to enable themselves to have that good night's sleep and to enable themselves to not have their conscience nagging at them. But if they really, you know, sat down and and made that deep reflection about their contribution to the mission um i think people come up with the same conclusion you know eventually we'll come up with the same conclusion i think the other piece of this is that obviously um we have such a, a you know ubiquitous military presence in our culture so it makes people think that um, the need for militarism, the need for war, the support for war, the support for militarism, the engagement with war and militarism is more natural and more commonplace than it actually is. But the military in the United States is made up of only about 1%, less than 1% of the population joins the military voluntarily. When you add veterans to that number of people in the United States today, the number only climbs to 7%. That means that only 7% of the people in this country have said, okay, I'll kill. Okay, I will support killing or I will kill. And of course, as you just mentioned, fewer than that 1% is engaged in direct warfare. So so way fewer than 1% or adding veterans, way fewer than 7% of people have said, I will willfully kill. In fact, when we speak with people, most people's recruitment experience has been just the opposite. They've been promised, you'll never have to engage in combat. You'll never see combat. You're not going to take part in anything, you know, remotely having to do with war. And that's the reason people have joined. So in my experience, I find that most people are not enthusiastic to kill. And that's not why they're joining the military. But they're joining the military because they feel like it's a way to serve. You know, it's another way to serve. And so, um, you know, or it's necessary and, and other people are, are willing to go, so I should go too. But I think it is a very important fact to remember that the, the 
the propaganda surrounding the military, the way military sponsors sporting events. You know, the Pentagon pays for those for those uh, you know avenues in you know NFL things or hockey or you know Major League Baseball, all those things. That's that's product placement. That's the that the Pentagon is paying for. You know, <laughs> yes, not yes. to mention you know not to mention in little little local communities, the National Guard sponsoring you know paintball competitions in high school, you know, for high school kids and all that other stuff. And you know, we've got uh, recruiters teaching classes. In high schools, and so we have this enormous presence of the military in our day-to-day lives, which doesn't actually translate into the hard numbers of who is involved in the military. So that's one way, you know, that I think we're psychologically manipulated into supporting the military. We think it's it's more pervasive and more necessary and more supported than it actually is in real numbers. The other thing is the budget. Our military budget, in terms of looking at the private sector, what I mean, uh, excuse me, the public sector, what the public, what our tax dollars support in terms of public goods and services, the military is over half of our budget, of course, depending on how you count the numbers, you know, and that includes servicing past wars and servicing veterans' needs. We're looking at more than 50%. That means more than 50 cents out of every dollar you give in taxes goes to the military. So when you mentioned earlier, people needing to make a living and feed their families, well, certainly that's a, that seems like it's, you know, it's, it's one of the very few places in our public sector that is amply, and some might argue, you know, overfunded, you know, so, uh, yeah, so we have a lot of, uh, <laughs> we have a lot of misleading, um, information and, um, kind of cultural attitudes, I think, about the military, you know, that cause people to, to feel the way they do. Yeah, that's one thing where, you know, when I talk to people, we can be on one accord. Yeah, Jay, I feel you. I feel you. You know, I understand, blah, blah, blah. But when I bring up the budget, I've literally mm-hmm. been told to go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean? That, what, that it, the the amount of spending on the military mm-hmm. is ridiculous and that, that it just mm-hmm. it should stop or whatever. That, that's when I get the side. I was like, yeah, you're going too far now. But I think it's really? pretty. Like, I think it's pretty obvious. Really? But yeah, because oh, you're God. messing because you're you're messing with people people's jobs at that point. Like that's how they feed their family by the military. So they think that if you cut the military budget, then that means that they get less money or they're not going to have a job. Oh. Or whatever, so see, but that's not where the money goes, right? If rank and file people, you know, were making a living wage, that would be one thing. But they're not in a lot of cases. If you're a private with a family. You're having a hard time feeding that family on your private salary, you know, and your yeah, and your your family might be going to the food bank for Thanksgiving, you know, no lie, and that's that's the God's honest truth about what's going on in this military. That lower ranking enlisted people are are barely making a living wage in today's military. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. So where's the money going? The money is going to weapons contractors. Look at the nuclear weapons budget over the last. Uh, 71 years of nuclear weapons development in our country, we have spent over $7 trillion. Think of what we, where we could be with alternative renewable energy if we spent that $7 trillion on, on renewable energies, uh, on uh, developing new technologies and putting rank-and-file people to work, real people to work. Instead, you build a nuclear weapon that sits on a shelf. Thank God it sits on a shelf and isn't being used. But how is that nuclear weapon generating jobs for that community? Okay, sure, a couple of um, scientists are making some money, a couple of technicians and a couple of broom pushers are making some money up in Los Alamos. But, you know, Los Alamos, New Mexico, where the, first na- where the nation's first nuclear weapons laboratory was placed during the Manhattan Project, still operable today, uh, that's the richest 
county in the country. One of the richest counties in the whole United States is Los Alamos County in New Mexico. One of the poorest counties in the whole United States is Rio Arriba County, which is right at the foot of Los Alamos County. Some might say at the boot heel of Los Alamos County, right? So how does that square? If these people are making so much money making nuclear weapons, why isn't that multiplying into the local community? Why aren't local people benefiting from the production of nuclear weapons? What about the production of these, you know, millions and millions, multi-million dollar aircraft that are being made? You know, those types of jobs are not, those types of public investments are not creating jobs. They're, they're stuff in the pockets of the CEOs of Raytheon and Northrop Grumman and um, Lockheed Martin, you know, and all those folks that make the weapons and then that give campaign contributions to the politicians. All those people are getting rich. But meanwhile, you know, the E1s and the E2s listed, you know, lower ranking people are needing to go to the food bank to feed their family, you know. So it's 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 really, you know, it's not it's not it's not a matter of um, taking wages away from someone. It's a matter of of um, challenging the military industrial complex, (laughs) the military industrial government contract uh, complex, you know. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, to to take it back just a little bit, when earlier when you were talking, you brought up the drone pilots and you know how they were doing what they were doing from New Mexico in a trailer, not New Mexico, Nevada in a trailer somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that led me to believe that you know you got those stories from actually speaking with pilots who were going through the same process. If or if not, could you tell? Could you share some of the more powerful CO? stories that you've had that you've dealt with that you've heard that have like really set you aback and that made you say wow like this is really powerful some some powerful co stories that you've heard oh gosh <laughs> wow that kind of catches me a little uh off guard i mean they're all everyone has their own individual story you know um and their own individual reason for their conscience crystallizing um I guess I can speak, you know, generally, obviously, without um, compromising anyone's identity. But of let's course. talk about North Korea, for example. Say North Korea. Some of the most intense cases that we've had have come from people who are stationed and um, North uh, South Korea. <laughs> Nobody's stationed in North Korea, obviously, but uh, we have troops in South Korea. In South Korea, um, they are continually uh, playing war games. You know, it's it's a very hostile you know, um, war, uh, you know, war focused environment. I mean, there, there is the immediate threat of North Korea right there. And we're, you know, just a little bit away, you know, just a little way, a little bit away. Our, our troops are stationed just a, a little ways away from a, from a hostile nation. And so the environment there is incredibly, um, stressful and violent for individuals there. So there's a lot of abuse of, indi- of individual service members and, um, a lot of people coming face to face with uh, how we dehumanize uh, not just the people we call our opponents, in that case, say, North Korea, but also the native population where we're occupying uh, in South Korea. So that's really intense. Um, another, uh, another CO that we worked with trained in Israel. And, uh, you know, the Israel-Palestine issue is, is really contentious and people fall on all sorts of the, on all places on the aisle, you know, about that issue. And regardless of how you feel, um, it's important to know that the United States military trains with the Israeli military. We don't train them. They train us. 
they train our members of our military. And um, and the way this conscientious objector described it is uh, they were told to kill anyone who approaches them, whether or not they feel that that person is a threat to them. Wow. So that was really intense. Yeah. Uh, you may remember, people may remember um, Robert uh, Bates, I think his name was. He was the guy who, he was at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, which is a very problematic base where a lot of cases of trauma were um, reversed. A lot of diagnoses of trauma were reversed in order to be able to redeploy traumatized troops. It was a very problematic base several years ago. Hundreds and hundreds of, of PTSD diagnoses overturned and traumatized troops were, were redeployed multiple times, including this one individual who was uh, an NCO. And he told this young CO uh, to, to be, uh, you know, to, to guard, to watch this one guy who was in the field. They were in Afghanistan. Robert Bates, for people who may be listening and may not recognize that name, he was the guy, he was prosecuted for dragging uh, 13 or 14 Afghan civilians out of their beds in the middle of the night. He left the post, walked off the army base in Afghanistan, went into a community, dragged Afghan civilians out of their beds in the middle of the night and assassinated them execution style as they uh, were in their, you know, night clothes. And he was eventually prosecuted for that. Um, but he, sh- he was traumatized and he should not have been redeployed. But when he was redeployed, and one of our conscientious objectors was under him. There was an Afghan man out in the field, you know, away from them. They would keep an eye on him. And the guy would repeatedly bring his hand to his mouth and then lower his hand back to his side. Bring his hand to his mouth and then lower his hand back to his side. And my client, our conscientious objector, thought, he's eating an apple. If you can picture the movement that he's making, if that makes sense now, lift your hand up, take a bite of the apple, drop your hand back down to your side. Lift your hand up, take another bite of the apple, drop your hand back down to the side. Well, uh, Sergeant Bates thought he was speaking in a, in a device and, and that he was going to, you know, do something to hurt the U.S. Uh, service members. And so he ordered one of his troops to shoot him. No evidence of anything. My conscientious objector thought he was eating an apple. No evidence that he was communicating with anyone. No immediate threat to the U.S. service members. But he was ordered, uh, one of these troops was ordered to, to shoot this person to kill without any evidence at all. So, um, you know, so these are the kinds of things that are real that happen in war, you know, people talk about war crimes or violations of the rules of engagement or things like that. Well, frankly, all war is a crime. Anything that happens in war is a crime. War itself, the act of war itself is a crime. You know, we have a situation now in our military, and I'm sure in militaries through history, where um, sexual assault or rape is part and parcel of uh, a military member's experience. And uh, this is true in our military, both for men and women. Men and women are sexually assaulted and raped. Because once you cross that moral line of dehumanizing someone, dehumanizing yourself in the process, and and making killing okay, where is the line then on on simply raping someone or simply sexually assaulting someone? You know, I mean, we're horrified by, by these by these instances of sexual assault, but yet shouldn't we be horrified by, by, the, by war itself, by the act of, of dehumanizing another individual uh, for any reason? You know, I hope I'm, I'm making sense there, you know, by, by making that connection. Um, there is not going to be a neat and tidy war that follows all the rules. And, uh, and a lot of times these are the instances that, that drive conscientious objectors to, to get out. Um, and the more traumatizing 
and experience that someone has had, it seems to me the more um, abandonment they feel from the military, the more betrayal they feel from the military, you know, because most people have joined with the truest of intentions, you know, and the most the most selfless of intentions. They really have joined to serve. And then they're asked to do things that are, um, are some of the worst things we could ever ask of our brothers and sisters to do to one another. Yeah, that you made a very strong connection there between, you know, with the rape and the the sexual assaults and the mm-hmm. the the killings like that. That was a strong connection. I never thought about it that way. But, oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, I mean, I think it's like what I'm certainly not saying that um, it's an expectation we should have and therefore we should look the other way. No, it's absolutely horrifying and, and shouldn't happen. However, um, we shouldn't be surprised that it does not, and, and it has nothing to do with women serving in the military because the last, uh, the the last five out of six sexual assault cases that I worked with were the the victims were men. So this isn't about women serving side by side for those people who are you know sort of maybe feeling like well women should never be in war or mil- women shouldn't be in the military anyway. That's not the issue, and that's completely beside the point because it, the door is opened to assault of one another in any way shape or form when you when you when you teach people how to dehumanize each other and because that inherently strips one's own humanity you can't possibly dehumanize another person without compromising your own humanity there's just no way wow so right (laughs) i can't deny that so let's just say you know someone listens to this to this podcast and they hear you speak they hear me speak and they're like okay you know what they're absolutely right i can't fight this anymore i've been feeling this and y'all just brought it out of me what's the first step that they can take and how is it that you all could help him help that him or her that person yeah sure i mean i would say obviously give us a call 202-483-2220 or go to our website center on conscience.org and get in touch with us. Um, I mean, the first step, as you know, Jay, I mean, you, you were able to, to write a beautiful uh, and moving application about your experience. That's the first step. I mean, telling your story um, is the first step. And, and what we hear time and time again from people is that uh, it's really therapeutic and it's really healing. You know, like somebody might be feeling, you know, feel, feeling some real true, um, you know, uh, pain and um, you know, inner struggle uh, with with their conscience, and, and that you know, and they might they might be experiencing what we call moral injury, you know, which is um, a kind of trauma, you know, that is characterized by by guilt and shame because of something you've done or something you failed to do, whether in war or in you know in military life in general. Um, and getting getting down to putting your story on paper, articulating it and giving it life and getting it out of your heart and you know and, and, and out into the world is really, really healing. It's a way of, of proactively taking back your conscience and taking back your humanity. And by extension, just like I said earlier, by taking someone else's humanity, you inevitably strip some of your own. The same is true in the opposite. By taking back and reclaiming your own humanity, you're able to, you know, um, to restore the humanity of others that you may have in the course of your service been, uh, you know, forced to strip. So, yeah, the first step, 
obviously getting in touch with us and then um, and getting your getting your story down on paper. That's the first step. That's really the foundation of the whole process. Um, it's not easy, as you can attest. It's, it's not easy to tell your story. It's not easy to to struggle through the process that the Department of Defense has laid out. They know it's it's a really serious thing. We say conscience is contagious. You know, one, as you've seen, Jay, too, you talk to other people and they talk about it, you know, and they talk about, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I just don't think about it. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying, but I got to, you know, I have to do this. I have to do that. And they kind of rationalize. Um, and the military is not a real fan of conscientious objectors because of that reason, because the simple presence of conscientious objectors in a unit compels other people to to contemplate the morality of war, to contemplate the morality of what they're doing. Oh, I know. You know. I know they're not big fans of conscience. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the only discharge decision, right, that leaves the local command. Of course, medical is made by, you know, medical officers. So that's, that's a little bit different. But conscientious objection in terms of an administrative separation, conscientious objection is the only separation that is not made at the local level, at the local command level, and has to go all the way up to the level of headquarters you know, of that particular branch. So in most cases, you know, depending on where your headquarters is and in several of the branches, it's in the Washington, D.C. area. That's where this decision is made because the Pentagon realizes the seriousness of this of this discharge. But we think that's great because then, you know, we got these high level, you know, high ranking officials reading statements of conscience every day. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Yeah. It, it is. Yeah. It is. It, it's just it's just crazy when I think about it cuz one powerful thing that I've noticed is when I talk to people in in uniform, I'm yet to meet one person that's at least said it to my face. One person that has said that I was wrong in how I felt or, you know, my conscience or whatever. Everyone's like, yeah, I've been feeling this in the same way, too. I've had the same thoughts. But, you know, it always comes back down to, well, you know, if I go through with this, then I'm going to be, you know, ridiculed or I'm going to go through all this or how am I going to feed my family? It always comes back to that. It never comes down to, hey, you're just making this up. This is crazy. Like, that doesn't make any sense. So I, I think I think that's powerful. That's why I think it's very important to get this message out and to keep talking right. about it and, and speaking it into people's lives. That's right. That's absolutely right. And and, you know, the military doesn't care if you're happy or if you're satisfied in your work. They just care that you're doing it. So they don't care if they have a lot of, you know, traumatized and unsatisfied worker bees, you know, little drones literally and figuratively you know doing their bidding uh they they could care less if you're spiritually fulfilled or if you're happy as long as you're doing your job you know um but afterwards you know when that conscience does come back uh we only hope that the military is there for them you know i mean look at the look at the 20 to 22 veteran suicides every day and the dod or the va will be quick to point out well those people a lot of those people haven't seen combat no, and I will absolutely affirm you do not need to see combat to be traumatized morally by military culture. As I said, military training is about dehumanizing oneself and others, and that really takes a toll on people. And then you see the internal environment and, and, and the, the, you know, the disrespect and the, and the maltreatment that comes from a culture that depends on, on dehumanization uh, in order to carry out its mission. Uh, so, yeah, people are in a lot of pain. And a good friend of mine who was a, 
who was in the Vietnam War, he said, uh, the military teaches us how to kill, but they don't teach us how to survive. And so we have a situation where people come out and they're on the outside and they're now reckoning with with their military history, with their military career and what, what, what they did, what they were asked to do, what they failed to do, what they witnessed, what they experienced. And, uh, and they're finding it really hard in, in so many cases to readjust. Obviously, more people have died after getting out of the military than have died in these wars that are ongoing today. You know, so um, clearly uh, we're failing in caring for people um, after they ex- after they experience military life and culture. Very true. Very true. Mm-hmm. So I guess before we get out of here, I know you mentioned the number. Could you give them all of the contact information, how they can get up with you, like website, social media, anything? Sure, yes. Okay, so uh, website, centeronconscience.org. So that's like con and science. Con- centeronconscience.org. Uh, our, our Facebook is just Center on Conscience and War. Um, Twitter is uh, at CCW and the digit four COs. And, um, yeah, our phone number, good old phone number, 202-483-2220, 202-483-2220. And you can certainly just um, just do a Google search for conscientious objections. Likely you'll find the GI rights hotline as well, um, and you can contact Center on Conscience and War through that. We're in the Washington, D.C. office also of the GI rights hotline. So, yeah, even if you're not having a crisis of conscience in your military service or maybe you're just getting getting your rights violated in some other way, give us a call about that, too. We do all kinds of human and civil rights counseling of members in the military. So no one can say that simply because of our opposition to war, we don't support the troops. We are absolutely pro-service member anti-war <laughs> yeah that's crazy how people think that i've been called a, a terrorist jokingly but you know it's crazy that people think that you don't care about you know troops or whatever because you don't support the war or whatever it's that's not the case two separate things absolutely two separate issues in fact i would argue that people who are more pro-war and if you look at the voting records Look at the voting records of people, and those who vote to put us in war are the same people who vote to cut veterans' benefits. And spoiler alert, they're Republicans. <laughs> Look, I'm not, a, I'm not a Democrat or a Republican, but I got to say that the Republicans somehow have this reputation of being the party of the, of, of the military. Actually, the, the Republicans are the party of war, but they're definitely not the party of supporting the military or supporting veterans. Look at their scorecards. The disabled American veterans put out a scorecard, and uh, the people who get A's are fall on the Democrat side, and the people who get F's, D's, and F's fall on uh, the Republican side. Even John McCain, even uh, prisoner, former prisoner of war John McCain gets a gets a low score from the from the DAV from the from the disabled American veterans. Uh, can't so, dis- you can't dispute facts. Yeah. Can't dispute facts. No. Nope. <laughs> well, I thought I thought we could in this election, but I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hope not. I hope not. I hope we actually have facts that we can agree on moving forward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you've definitely enlightened me. I hope you enlightened the audience as well. If you could say, I guess if this is the last time you had to speak, if you could say something to someone out there listening to reach them, what would you say uh, as far as this topic is concerned? Oh, wow. That's that's a tall order. I would say um, the bottom line is listen to your conscience. You know, it has been said that 
um, the conscience is, uh, you know, the, the law of God written on the human heart. And um, that's the best counsel that we each have is our own conscience. And so, uh, you know, take a moment and, and listen to your conscience and hear what it's telling you. And uh, if it tells you you want to seek separation, give us a call. <laughs> cool. Cool. Thank you so much for, for being on today. All right. Thank you, Jay. Talk to you soon. Take uh, care. Thanks, everybody. All right. You too. Peace. Bye.